0: Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. For a free trial and 10% off your new account, go to Squarespace.com slash TWIP. This
1: week on TWIP, Snow Leopard in the wild, Canon's 7D specs leaked, And photographer David Tejada. All that and more coming up on episode number 105 of This Week in Photography. And welcome back to another exciting episode of This Week in Photography. I'm your host, Frederick Van Johnson. Today on the show um, is a couple of the usual suspects. And uh, the first on the list, of course, in the Petaluma studio up there is Mr. Alex Lindsay. Hey, Alex. Hi. How's it going? It is going fantabulous. It's as long as here. my bandwidth holds up for this show, <laughs> I feel I feel
0: good about this. Your, your bandwidth, uh, we we need to we need to talk about that. We need to have. A conversation.
1: Hey, you need, you need to pull some of your strings and get in contact with the Comcast folks, and uh, you know help have, have them open the diaphragm up a little bit in my neighborhood. <laughs> get a little more Comcastic. <laughs> I need to be more comcastic. Yeah, there you go. I'm feeling uncomcastic right now, and also coming from the uh, part of the East Coast over there is Mr. Aaron Mailer in the upper right-hand corner there. Hey, Aaron. Hello, everybody. Here in my usual location. Finally, I get a chance to talk to Mr. Steve Simon again. He's back on the show. Hey, Steve.
2: Uh, hey guys, how you doing? Hey uh, Frederick, I like the feng shui. I got to do something about the feng shui behind me here. I think you you win in the feng shui department. Oh with That's my nice with my nice little backstory. art
1: on the wall back there? I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Always you know. Promoting. You know what I'm saying? You know, I have two secrets. One is Target and one, and one is IKEA. <laughs>
2: and And some paint you're good to go you know go get some frames i can't really see the photos back there but you know when you look at in the old days at a contact sheet you don't even have to see it you get the shapes and you get the composition and i know there are good photos behind me there
1: did you take you see the difference (laughs) behind you the the background behind you it looks like you're just this busy photographer you got calendars and timelines and stickies and all that stuff and i got some photos back there come on who's 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 more who's the, the more professional person
2: it's a little bit NASA-like uh, back there without any of the tech. It's just like a <laughs> yeah. calendar. All right. Anyway, let's, let's continue on. All
1: right. We're moving right along here. All right. So uh, quickly a nod to our sponsor. Today's This Week in Photography, a.k.a. TWIP, is brought to you by Squarespace.com. They're a fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. And if you want a free trial and get 10% off your new account, go to Squarespace.com forward slash TWIP. And enter the offer code TWIP. So jumping into the news, um, the big news, of course, of last week was, uh, at least least if you're a Mac user, was Snow Leopard, the new operating system from Apple, was released. And um, I think that has uh, lots of, of course, effects on photographers because there's been lots of, following the tweets that have been flying back and forth, there's been, you know, issues, uh, sporadic issues I've seen from people that are using... Uh, different imaging software, whether it's from Adobe or if it's from Nikon with the uh, with the Capture NX and all that stuff. So my question to you guys would be: Have you
0: upgraded? And I know Alex, you probably upgraded like six months ago. <laughs> um, so we we have a we have a test machine that has uh, that that has Snow Leopard on it, and uh, we're we're still testing it for. Uh, for compatibility, we're trying to make sure that it works with all the applications that, that we need. Uh, we're mm-hmm. also looking at how we're going to change our workflows uh, based on, especially services, uh, which is what we're probably most excited about. Yeah.
1: So so what's what's the cool thing in Snow Leopard that you, as a... You know multimedia
0: maven that you care about the most well, the thing that I care about the most absolutely is well the two, there 's two things uh, one is o- opencl, but that 's something that 's not going to really affect us for another year uh, as as people start really developing for it what that, what that means especially for people doing media is the ability to take full advantage of the uh, openGL uh, cards that you have uh, and being able to uh, use those to process your images so you can imagine a lot of your effects really happening in real time now i don 't know how much that 's going to affect things like Photoshop. Uh, and other things because they're old code. But when you have uh, people who are writing newer uh, applications, I think some of the Cocoa applications, a, a, an application like Pixelmator might take advantage of it faster uh, than, than something like Photoshop. Uh, yeah. But I think that uh, that's going to be a huge uh, thing down the road. In the immediate future, uh, and, and, and I'm talking uh, September, October for us, uh, we are incredibly excited about services. In fact, MacBreak, uh, itself, we put out a couple videos, um, over the last, uh, two, couple days. And we're going to put a couple more out this week about how these new services are going to affect, uh, you know, what we're doing. And, and the thing is, is that services were really this kind of, no one used them. I mean, really, I mean, they were, they were like this stupid thing in the, in the, uh, interface that you'd see services and it was, you, you were like, who uses this? And, uh, in print, some people in print used it, uh, for, for a couple things, but the, uh, now, what they've done is you're able to actually tie all of your automator stuff into services, so you can develop a workflow that you want, and then have it contextually available. If you're in a text document, certain services pop up. If you're in aperture, certain fr- services pop up. If you're or any mm-hmm. kind of photo editing uh, software, so you're in Photoshop, and 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 these services also um, have been expanded to what they can get a hold of. And so, you know, there's a lot of things you can do taking advantage of WebKit, taking advantage of shell scripts, taking av- and some of that stuff was available before, but now it's really right on the surface. And it's going to, uh, you know, uh, that combined. For instance, when we do training, we can now QuickTime, by the way, now records does screen captures like Snaps did, and and uh, and still does. It's not. Yeah, as what's controlled. that going to do to those guys? Does it mean that
1: you don't need those screen captures? No, capture applications not really. Anymore? If you're
0: doing this all the time, there's a you know the the, the QuickTime version of. Screen capture is a uh, is a very basic version. It's just like oh, I want to capture the screen. I can't select. Ser- it's it's you know it's not really designed to select okay. all these areas and have tons of control over what compression and frame rates and so if you're still if you're a professional doing this a lot you're still going to be using uh, I show you or Snaps or the new Camtasia which is now there's Camtasia for the Mac just came out last week so these are all things that um that that you you may be using to do your um, or screencast I guess is another one or ScreenFlow so these are the four applications. And you may use those, uh, and you probably will if you're still doing professional work. But if you just want to show someone how, what's going on now, you, it's just it couldn't be any easier. You can have a, a quick time, and, and you can just simply capture the screen. It, it compresses it to H.264 on the fly while it's recording. It's immediately mm-hmm. done afterwards. Now, what we're doing, for instance, with services is setting up a screen cap, st- setting up a keystroke um, within our Mac that when we when we hit the keystroke, it just automatically opens up QuickTime. Has it go to screen record? We can record the screen. As soon as we hit stop, it will send that uh, applicate. It'll send that screen capture to an FTP site and email the people that need to know. Um, the the people that are managing that that uh, <laughs> that process cool. automatically. So from from an artist point of view, we want to just we want to codify something like, "Hey, this is how I'm doing the lower thirds," and this yeah. is something that's we're going to do over and over and over again. Well, someone could just hit a screen, hit a, hit a button. Do the real screen capture and talk a little bit, and then hit stop and boom. It, it'll, it'll ask them, "Do you want to send this?" And, then, and when they send it, it'll send it to the controller. Send an email to the controller. Send everything up to the FTP. Everything's boom. It's done. And that's yeah. the and and that is a um, that's the kind of stuff that you know. There's lots of pieces of that puzzle when you start combining services, for instance, with WebKit, which is now available. Um, you can have you can have iPhone like web you know the web interfaces, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, show up. You know, on your uh, on your desktop, which is kind of right. cool. So then, so then bringing this back home for the This Week in Photography
1: folks, why or should a the, the average you know, This Week in Photography listener, i.e. us, you know, just sort of your average Joes with cameras, should, th- or professional photographers like Steve, for example, should they jump on the Snow Leopard bandwagon right now or should they hold off? Is Probably. there anything compelling in there that says, hey, if you're a photographer, you need to be using this OS right now? Um I would hold off, actually. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, so I'm very excited about it. After all that, hold after off. all of okay. that, we're really excited about Snow Leopard. And, and here's the thing is there's some fallout that's going on right now. Here, um, generally, for to- people that are in production, uh, is a... Uh, for people in production, you generally don't want to upgrade your work machine to the newest version of any operating system immediately. There's going to be some time you want to take to make sure that it is exactly what it, you know, that all the pieces are there. For instance, Adobe has announced, and, and they're kind of backpedaling now and trying to figure it out, but they weren't going to support CS3 in Snow Leopard. And so if you upgrade, mm-hmm. you're going to be... and, and Uh, they say that it's just because they don't want to, you know, they're, they're forward thinking and so on and so forth. And and that's probably a valid reason. I think that there are other, some people have said that there are other reasons for it number one is yeah, adobe forward really thinking for your quarterly results of course yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's for their quarter results right exactly so <laughs> and and also that there's a you know i think that there is a uh, whether whether anyone wants to talk about it or not i think there is a growing storm between uh, adobe and apple uh, and i think that there's some issues that 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 both of them have adobe more than adobe has more to lose right now with where apple's going than than apple you know has to lose with where adobe's going but the the issue is is that um you there's a growing storm over Flash. I believe is going to happen between the iPad that we think is going to come out and the iPhone and everything else that could really stunt Flash's um, ex- you know uh, long term trajectory if if it's right. not solved. And I think I think there's a, some sensitivities to that. And I think we're seeing you know uh, Adobe where they can gently. The, the problem that Adobe has is that if they push too hard, Apple will build a photo editing app. You know, and, yeah. and that's the and, and the issue. Uh, and i'm working on a paper right now for uh, a post about this right now is the issue is that Um, what we, we had this huge discussion last week because CS three, we have CS three, we have CS two on a bunch of our machines because we haven't needed to upgrade. The the reality is, is that 80% of what we use in the office has been in Photoshop since, uh, 1995, uh, 95% of what we use in Photoshop has been in the office, has been in Photoshop since about 2002. And there's only just a little detail of, 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 uh, what's there, um, that we use, um, you know, from from the current version. And, and, and the problem mm-hmm. that we have is now that we have to upgrade, if there was another version of Photoshop that was open, you know, Pixelmator is almost there without – it just needs a couple things like some good path tools and a couple other th- things mm-hmm. where, uh, you know, we'd be really interested in a less expensive version. Having to upgrade just because we upgraded our operating system uh, is making us upset, and it's probably – it's – evidently making a lot of people upset right right now right. yeah. now steve simon
1: um have you decided to make the jump from uh where do you on uh, mac os 9 right now right are you are you jumping <laughs> to no, snow I'm like,
2: completely I am completely up to date I mean I couldn't resist I mean I live as you know between Apple Store and H photo so when something yeah. new comes out I may not be able to afford it I'll go take a look, and of course, for the $29 uh, to upgrade the system, I did it right away. Haven't noticed much of a difference, but here's something that I don't fully understand, but I'm kind of excited about it. I just tried it um, just quickly before we went to air, and that is this idea that certain applications are built 64-bit. And if you can turn on the 64-bit magic that's built into your current computer, you can get a huge speed upgrade. And I saw this on the web, and we'll, we'll, we'll link to it. So I did that, and to turn on 64-bit, all you ha- apparently have to do is hold the, four, the number 4 and the number 6 key as you uh, reboot and then let go. And once it's on, I, I put on aperture, and it seems to be a lot faster. And according to where, the link I saw on the, on the web, uh, I think it was Lloyd's Digicam, um, it's, it's much faster. And it works not only for Aperture but also for Lightroom and Photoshop. But the sort of scary thing is they're not really sort of announcing this because the compatibility issues that Alex alluded to. But I'm kind of anxious. And I think what I'll do is I'll, I'll hit the four and six, turn, it, turn on 64-bit when I'm doing my editing in Aperture and then I'll just go back to regular until everything sort of shakes down. But apparently that is built into our systems or many systems now, and we can take advantage of this huge speed increase right away. Does that that make sense to you guys that know more about this?
0: You know, I think that going back and forth with 64-bit is, is, it definitely makes sense with, especially if you're doing applications that are really memory intensive and uh, and speed intensive. And I, and I think that that is uh, something to take advantage of. I think for many people, going back and forth between 32-bit and 64-bit might be something that they don't want to do too much, and they won't have to for very long. Probably in the next three months yeah. or f- uh, four months or six months at the most, most of these applications will be taking advantage of that, except for probably, you know, yeah. Photoshop.
2: Yeah, but you know, it's, it's, well, it's, I got to tell you, just playing with Aperture just briefly before we came on here, it seemed to be a lot faster, and it's right. and, and you know, the gentleman on and the website alluded to the fact that this is like getting a hardware upgrade for your photo processing um, without having to spend anything, or or with just needing to spend the twenty nine bucks. So I think that is one thing that once I explore it a little bit, hopefully, it won't uh, do, there's no negatives to it, but it looked as though at least in Aperture. It, 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 it was a lot faster, so that's kind of exciting.
1: Great. I would I would just tack on to that, just you know, be careful when because not all applications. And Alex, I know you you you're probably really intimate with this. Not all applications are going to be uh, 64-bit compatible. And, I don't, and like Alex said, I don't know that you want to be popping back and forth. If you live in a certain application and it's twice as fast because you know you enable the checkbox, this is 64-bit, and you have a machine that can handle it. Then by all means. But if you're like me and you're popping around between a dozen applications all the time and some of them are and some of them aren't i don't know i would uh i would just err on the side of let's just keep everything the same for now and then switch to 64-bit when everything uh can support yeah, i, it. What I about was you?
2: just gonna say i was just gonna start to interrupt i just i was just Go gonna ahead. say though if you're gonna do this just do it when you have to do sort of a, a big sort of photo post-processing session and then just Go back and pretend that you don't have it. Eventually, like you say, everything's going to be smooth. But I think the the, the time saving, just sort of the, uh, the 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 fun of of working on a faster application when you've got a lot of post processing to do, big raw files. I think that's that's pretty exciting. But I agree with you, Fred. Go back to to the regular thing uh, as soon as you're done with your. Yeah, Post-profit. and Aaron
1: Aaron you're uh, you're on the side of being on the back end of all this stuff and on the front end as a photographer have you made the jump to upgrade everybody that you're responsible for to the new
3: os or are you holding off oh shoot campus wide well I mean that's not my role exactly um where I work but uh campus-wide, it'll be a while before the transition is made just because of the sheer number of machines we deal with, but, I mean, personally, I made the jump this weekend, and, and I've been beta testing for Apple as a developer for a while and kind of watching it evolve, and it is impressive, I have to say. I mean, performance boost I'm seeing is pretty significant in a lot of ways, but, and we've gone down the, the path of a lot of details and kind of gotten a little Mac Break Weekly here, but um, I just think the reason I put it in the show notes initially for the show, too, was one of the most obvious, right off the top, performance-aside issues that a photographer is going to see is the default gamma has changed from 1.8 to 2.2 for Snow mm. Leopard. So your display and your colors are going to look a bit different initially. Um, in fact, I'm I'm about to recalibrate my monitor again you know, around the whole huge new. a point. Yeah, figuration. that's gigantic. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah, and I think yeah. that people definitely have to make sure that they make that adjustment. So you're, it, yeah. everything's going to look darker, right? Yeah. For me, it's the opposite. I'm sorry. Sorry. So, so the uh, but you're gonna uh, so you're gonna need to make sure that that gets uh, sorted out quickly, and it's just a matter of going through the recalibration process at least, a minimum, to kind of um, sort all that stuff out. Or you are going to be delivering photos that are going the wrong
3: direction. And what I'll do is recalibrate now around 2.2 as my uh, you know as my gamma point essentially because I always did it at 1.8 native to the Mac originally. Uh, so it you know it does look a little bit bleached to me by default with the uh, with my non-calibrated display right now. Right, mm. right. Very good. All right,
1: let's move on away from the snow leopard and talk a little bit about Canon's uh, the new 7D specs. The leak. alleged 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 specs that we saw. Yeah, the week. <laughs> um, 18 megapixels, dual processors, processors for eight frames per second, uh, 19 autofocus points. It's got a wireless flash master in there, so um, presumably it can do the whole uh, controlling multiple flashes from the body itself. Um, what do you guys think about that? I mean, is, uh, and, and the fact that it still has that APS-C, or the smaller size sensor in there. Uh, what do you think about this? Is it a, does this is this big news,
3: or is this like, meh? Um, if it's pure yeah. rumor, then somebody chose the specs pretty intelligently, I think, <laughs> as far as what they're predicting, because it looks like a likely design to me, personally, but I, I have no way of knowing. Yeah, it definitely looks like a lightly a uh,
0: likely design. I'll be interested to see what low light looks like. I'm not. Mm-hmm. I have to admit that now I'm. I'm, uh, and I know that the prices are still high. But I really would have a hard time buying a ABS sensor at this point. Yep. Um, yep. You know, I, I really would want to have a full fi- full size. If I was spending, once I go overspending. Uh, more than $1,000. If I'm buying a cheap you know, SLR that I want to use that I'm, I'm shooting my family with or I'm doing a couple things that I'm starting with and so on and so forth, uh, I, that might be something that I'd buy um, an aps size sensor. But I think that we're really moving to a point where you really want to start seeing – if you're going to start investing in glass and all those other things, I'd rather just have a full-size sensor. See, that is the – that's the story I've been saying for like 18 months and
1: – you know, I don't want to speak ill of the person that's not here, and his name is Ron Brinkman. <laughs> Ron, Ron always talks about you know having the the crop and cropped frame sensors, and that it's okay for buying those smaller or those those lenses that are designed for that sensor because they're cheaper, and you get the you know the increased focal length and all that stuff. And I uh, I, I happen that, to disagree vehemently. Yeah, I think really. there
2: there there are like high end people, of course, and I think we'd probably. Uh, uh, lump ourselves in that category, but I think, you know, with the, the, the Nikon 300S that's coming out or is out right now and this 7D, when it does materialize, it shows the commitment, and I, I think part of it is we're realizing that, you know, more megapixels, and we've talked about this for a long time, uh, full-frame, you know, is, is, is obviously a wonderful thing, but not yeah. everybody needs it, and not everybody wants sort of the bigger um, format-type cameras, And 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 you know you can do so much, and and uh, what what the advances that are made with these APS sensors um, are are quite extraordinary as well uh, as as some of the other stuff. So. Uh, you know, you're seeing that, you know, people are going to realize what these things really do and what they really need. And there's a huge market out there that doesn't necessarily need the full frame or or is not coming from sort of the old days where, you know, full frame APS. This is more of a reference to to the film days, and and there's a whole new generation that could care less about that. So it doesn't really matter. And they can build smaller uh, equipment, uh, lighter, and, and that makes a lot of sense.
1: Yeah. Now Steve, would you would you be jumping ship from Nikon over to the Canon when this thing comes out or are you gonna stay put?
2: <laughs> I am I am not jumping ship. I'm mean, you're talking to the guy who's stuck with uh the one manufacturer Nikon since basically I was a kid. And, you know, again, I love the, the stuff, but ultimately, it's not about the stuff. It's about what you do with it. And, you know, frankly, uh, it's always going to see-saw back and forth, but I'm, I'm, I'm not going to – I'm never going to say never, but I, 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 I haven't up until now, and I don't suspect I will in the future.
1: Good on you. Very good. Well, let's let's take a second to uh, give another nod to our sponsor, Squarespace. Squarespace.com is the way to build, host, and manage your website. They've got an easy-to-use UI for creating and managing your website or blog. They're optimized for both the newbies and the CSS experts. And they've got hundreds of design templates to choose from. And you can customize and tweak those designs to fit your specific needs. If you want a free trial, again, go to squarespace.com forward slash twip. You don't need a credit card. Just uh, try it out. Build your website, and if you decide to purchase it, you'll get ten percent off when you enter the offer code T W I P. And I just got to say,
0: and, we're we're doing so much work right now in in, in Squarespace that we mm-hmm. just we um, we love it. I mean, we you know within the Pixel Core, we're building a, a whole new site structure that we're that we're um, working on in the Pixel Core, and then I'm building my little thing on it, and of course Twip Log is on it, and uh, it's yeah. just such a great um, wait, I, I just can't ugh can't believe i used to do something else that's all i mean i just <laughs> i'm just uh, such a, i'm just i just can't go you back you
1: can't believe you were seeing other people before squarespace exactly came there's right. just
0: nobody before you know it's just like ugh <laughs> and, and there's you know there's lots of things you do stu- and when you need to do custom code you can do custom code you know so when, it's not that we never need to do that but but the main thing is is that when we want to change something we threw something up last week we had a guy that never used squarespace that literally just threw up the page oh we got to do a bunch of streams we had to three streams for a client so they can see what's going on in the studio and he had Set it up and inserted all the streams inside of like 10 minutes. You know, it's just, it was amazing. So, anyway, that's it.
1: Well, that's technology, taking complex things and making them really simple and accessible. Yes, it's so nice. So, Squarespace.com, again, go to Squarespace.com forward slash TWIP, enter that offer code TWIP to get your 10% off. And continuing in the news, Sony has launched their new full-frame A850 digital SLR, which I want I to, to hopefully in the next couple of weeks, bring on um, Aussie photographer Philip Andrews, who uses and swears by the Sony line of uh, digital SLRs, and I want to have him... Talk a lot about this this new body that they just released, but you guys off the top. I mean, twenty four point six megapixels and um, you know lots of cool features in there that are specific to the Sony brand. What do, what do you guys think about this? Is this a game changer? And should Nikon and Canon be worried now that Sony is is doing their uh, you know their sumo sumo stop?
0: Well, I think it, I think it definitely puts a lot of pressure on Nikon and Canon to put a full fr- full frame sensor. Uh, under two thousand dollars. I mean, that's that's what they're doing. They're hitting at two thousand dollars. This is a. I think it's. I don't know if it's a game changer yet. I think one of the things we have to see is what the low light performance is. I, I, I feel like they're going the wrong direction with that. I think that that. Yeah. Um, I think that that. I would. I think they would do better at. Twelve megapixels, under two thousand dollars, full frame sensor that was that could see in the dark. <laughs> you know, like like I mean, you know, that could you know they, yeah. that that could go to thirty two hundred or sixty four hundred without a lot of uh, without a lot of grain. And I, I don't know how this one is going to turn out. If that if their low light performance is good, but I, I, I think that's the only uh, you know fly in the ointment. I think um, you know as far as as far as the uh, frame size, but I think it's great. I think it's exciting for all photographers to see full frame sensors going under two grand. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think a game
2: Sony, t- is, Sony has said that they're not wanting to necessarily break into the professional market. But the fact is there are a lot of professional mark, uh, photographers that are using Sony equipment. Um, I'm starting to look more at my system as more of sort of a lens system. And then, you know, because bodies are always coming and going, but lenses endure. And as we're finding out, you know, at least in the Nikon system, I'm sure in Canon as well, you know, some of the old classic lenses are working beautifully and the, the, the optics are incredible on the D3X, yeah. which really shows things up. So I'm kind of looking at, you know, getting the system and then just hoping that, you know, the, the bodies, uh, and, and inevitably they do, but there's no question, um, you know, Nikon does have a 24 megapixel camera, but it's $8,000. And here we're, we're looking at one that has that megapixelage. For two grand, so I mean, you know, it, it, it's there's going to be a market for this for sure. But I'm I'm looking sort of at, at as the investment in in a system of lenses as being sort of the, the major component of my system.
0: Well, again, yeah. I think I think that low light is is something that that we is just so important, and I think that oftentimes is is being overlooked uh, when we start seeing these really really high numbers.
1: Yeah, Aaron Mailer, do you have your uh, your 5D
3: blinders on, or do you do you care about these other these other <laughs> bodies that come up? Um, I personally just feel that uh, Canon and Nikon are such juggernauts right now that I'm, I, I, like Alex said, I find it compelling that it, it pressures the market. But personally speaking, from an investment standpoint, I don't see myself switching anytime soon, even between Nikon and Canon, uh, much less to a third party that doesn't quite have the, you know, the the weight in the market that they do. Not, I mean, Sony certainly has a, a huge piece of the market when it comes to the to smaller cameras, but I think on the DSLR end, they're still going to be. Having a, a bit of a fight ahead of them um, to really get established to the degree that Canon and Nikon are for sure, and it's a
1: it's a long term play for for anybody mm-hmm. that wants to play in this. It's not like you're going to convince people like Steve uh, or whomever to part with their you know the, right. the camera that they've been using since they were a kid. You know, there has to be. They have to erode away at you, <laughs> and well, hopefully I mean, I at was, one point when you're when you're ready to make a purchase decision and you're at
0: that point you're like, hmm, maybe I'll try this different body, but you know it's not going to be an overnight thing at all. But well, one of the right. one of the other things is that I just uh, wanted to say is that I don't think they have video in this. I don't think it shoots video. Oh. Um, I was looking at the the features. You know, it's, it's so funny now you get to a it's point so where you assume you you would almost uh-huh. assume that that a that a, a new SLR would have video incorporated, um, and uh and I don't see – I was looking through their um, stats, and I, I looked through it the other – when this got on the notes, and I didn't see it. And then I looked at it again while we were talking, and I just don't see it listed. And you would think that that would be a pretty big deal. It's got an HDMI output, but it doesn't say anything about recording video formats. And, and that is a – for me, that's a deal killer. I mean, I wouldn't buy another – I wouldn't buy a camera over $1,000. I wouldn't buy a camera over – I wouldn't buy a camera without video. <laughs> you know, it's just that
4: you, know,
1: it just, it, it just, you want it so own. often. <laughs> You want to no, sell I, mean, I, I don't. A, a I don't lot of people so. just don't give a crap or care. Sorry about oh,
2: video. They right? just don't right. their. Like, I'm never going to use that. A, so
1: it's all about the camera. Okay.
2: When you look at a, a camera <laughs> that's got 25 <laughs> megapixels, I mean, that's a very specific use for a camera. And I think a lot of photographers, still photographers, that are kind of getting into video, um, are still still photographers first, and they they might dedicate one body. Uh, It could be a still camera, it could be a hybrid, like a D300S or D90 or 5D Mark II, and they're using video with that. But um, the idea of sort of having one camera that does both all the time, I think for a lot of photographers from the still world, it's not quite a deal breaker necessarily. Although in the amateur market or the serious hobbyist, it sort of makes sense if you're only going to have one camera. That you're going to yeah. have uh, well, a couple. The, the one thing I say
0: though is is I, I posted this on Twitter uh, a couple of weeks ago, but did you guys see the stillmotion.ca website? Yeah. If you, do, if you go to Vimeo and search stillmotion. Um, what you're going to see now they they used to use uh uh convert you know converters for video cameras, but now they're shooting with 5Ds and uh you're seeing their wedding it's you know they're the, I don't know we I don't really want to get them on the show. So but they um, they're using five Ds to shoot the video, and I think that they're also doing the still, the still uh, still photography for a wedding as well as these five Ds. And it looks like a music video. I mean, it is yeah. stunning, stunning. It looks like work. a
1: trailer for a movie or something. Yeah. Looks, you know, and and the thing yeah.
0: is, is that when I saw that, I was like, every video, every wedding photographer needs to look at this video because if they can't do that five or ten years down the road, they better be top like top 100 people in the world that do what they do because that, that, they're the only ones that are g- going to survive when companies start really picking up speed on that. because it's just-
1: That's interesting. I had a I did an interview last night actually with uh, Tazra Dawson and Ron Dawson uh, who are they're, they're, they're influencers in the sort of event photography, corporate photography, videography, that, that whole space. He's got a book out, all this stuff. And uh, so I consider them an expert on it. And, uh, and I asked Ron very point blank, should photographers that have been shooting, or professional photographers, are making money at this? Uh, should once they get their new 5D or whatever camera that can shoot high definition video, should they add a line item to their price list that says "video"? Now, you know. And he, yeah. his response was no. Uh, you should, because in his, and he qualified that by saying, um, not everybody's going to be an expert. I'm paraphrasing, but he said, not everybody's going to be an expert at videography and be able to do an adequate job. And until you are, and even if you, if you, even have aspirations to do that. It's going to take time to get to the level that you can produce really professional work. Until that, that time, if you want to add it, you should hire somebody to to augment your services that can do a really good job at it. Yeah. What do you guys think? And
2: that's a, that's a really good point because, um, you know, the, the, the Canadian group that Alex pointed to and the, the work was extraordinary, these guys are kind of coming from the moving picture world. They were a production team doing this kind of stuff, and now they're using this new equipment. And, and that is their main sort of forte. Um, yeah. You know, the fact is, I've talked to some wedding photographers, and maybe you guys have a different perspective, but um, the still wedding photographer now augmenting their, their uh, services with, you know, these video clips that we're able to do um, are, are much more uh, predominant. And sort of having someone come and video your wedding is, is, is much less than it used to be. They're saying that market is going down, whereas the stills, um, is, is going up. Well,
0: I think that what I would say about that, though, is that, that that's exactly why they have to pay, it, pay attention to it to some degree is that what, you know, companies that do this real high-end look uh, are able to command, I think, a, a, much higher num- a much higher price. You know, and being able to, to yeah. put that in is... Because I think that you have to stay on the front of that, that edge because it's not going to just be... I think the problem that photographers are going to have... And we were close. If I hadn't gotten... If I hadn't had a friend shoot my video... Uh, I mean, shoot my video, shoot my, my wedding. If I hadn't had a friend shoot my video and, and was able to set up a a real good relationship with him where I got, you know, all the raw data, <laughs> which is <laughs> what a, video product, a wedding photographer would never would do. Uh, right. If I didn't get that deal, I, what I was going to do is get a bunch of digital cameras and give them out to everyone, give like 15 people digital cameras and have them shoot the wedding. I wasn't going to... There was no option for me to hire a wedding video, a wedding but, photographer. But when
1: you do that, Alex, you, you'd get coverage. You know, no doubt, you'd get every nook and cranny, and and flower arrangement, and everything would would have some sort of photo of it. But if you do that, you're losing the artisanship that the that the photographer, the professional photographer, would bring to it. You know, and the storytelling and you know just the the lighting and composition and all that stuff you don't you don't get that well, you, you I have, think you would end up with a with a bunch of raw
0: snapshots right you, you haven't seen the way my brothers and sisters shoot pictures <laughs> oh,
1: <okay>. I'm, <laughs> well, I'm the, the just, Lin- let me just put it in perspective the Lindsay it's, family.
0: It's, uh, it, I'm the worst photographer in the family so um, oh, okay. you know so I am the most technical um, but my I have uh, my brothers and sisters have better eyes than I do when it comes okay. to shooting so so um, so it was it was a doable thing for me it may not be a doable for everyone but I think that oftentimes you get these great I mean, just great images that, um, uh, uh that. Uh, that you couldn 't get actually that a photographer wouldn 't get, and I think a lot of times uh, what video what vi- wedding photographers do is oftentimes a very limited s- set of of what 's there. When you have people who are actually know are there at the wedding who know everybody, they also know who 's important to take pictures of and what 's right. important to take pictures of in a way that that the photographer maybe is not as fit and finish and and maybe you should have someone at least dedicated to doing that, but at the same time, I think that there 's something that you can get. By having um, a lot of people shooting photos, um, and you know, and 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 oftentimes, you know, you have a whole bunch of people shooting thousands and thousands of photos, and, and typically, all we need is, you know, most people, you have all these wedding pictures taken, and you're going to put up three. Yeah, you know, you yeah. just need three good photos that really capture the 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 feel of it. Interesting. All right, let's move on. Uh, hey,
1: Aaron, you want to uh, take us through the, the the poll and the results from last week's poll?
3: Sure um last week's poll uh was if you end up with a flawed you know quote unquote flawed photo uh blurred or excessive grain or something uh, do you toss it or rescue it with some creative editing and um as it turned out we had 37 percent say if it's not tack sharp and noise free it goes right in the dumper and uh, the remaining 63 percent say that um you know if i end up with a lemon i make lemonade but uh, they essentially hold on to the photo and and i'll add um in addition to this i did have a, a a message from a listener this week uh, based on the poll. It said, uh, On your last poll, the options are either trash or keep and rescue bad photos. Is there value in keeping otherwise unusable photos to learn from your mistakes, even briefly? And I would say wholeheartedly yes. I mean, I do the same thing. I hang on to pictures and use them for reference, um, to, you know, kind of see what mistakes were made. I think it's helped make me a better photographer over time. I would also say another reason to hang on to your quote unquote bad shots uh is we never know where the technology is going in terms of rescuing shots in a lot of cases and something that might be unacceptable today uh, could have some you know real value in the future depending on what your goals are and the other thing I would add, too, is that uh, a lot of times you can take a bad shot and do something very creative with it and create an absolutely beautiful shot. I mean, just by yeah. doing uh, some type of artistic uh, color treatment, you know, other types of effects with a shot. And as those skills increase for you over time, some of those, you know, bad shots that you have come back around and could be useful for you again in the future as your eye changes and as you begin to approach from a different perspective. Yeah. Uh, so and I just I thought I would of kind of tie like uh... that question
2: kind of like freezing ahead, Walt Steve. Disney. Kind of like freezing Walt Disney and waiting for right. the medical technology to You have a Only photo. Steve eventually Simon. eventually we'll be able to uh unsaw an out of focus picture and sharpen it up and all that kind of stuff. Wait, oh, right? So, right. I think one thing I, you know, oh. you know, I just want to add one more thing. Do you remember the, the days of film? You guys are too young to remember, but you know you have to waste <laughs> the first couple of frames before you get to number one. And there was always Mm -hmm. that, you know, shots of your feet and all that kind of stuff. I remember seeing a photographer taking those wasted frames and doing kind of a little exhibition of (laughs) (laughs) images that were really cool (laughs) of those wasted shots. So sometimes in editing, because we're moving so fast, we don't really see things. And I think there is value in, generally speaking, not deleting a lot of the stuff. I mean, you know, some things are kind of obvious, but you want to sort of... Maintain things, and then maybe go back to them. You know, storage is cheap, and uh, things are moving faster, so we're able to edit, edit quickly, and uh, you never know.
0: I have to admit, I I I trash you know twenty five percent of the photos before they even get off the card. You know, while I'm sitting there shooting, yeah. you know, and mm-hmm. um, but what the I think that the part of that is is a, is the a thought process of how you shoot. Some people really set up and shoot. Uh, if I think I have a good picture, like there's this there's a good picture here somewhere you know, I'm going to shoot 20 photos, 20, 30, 40, you know, of, of something that most people would take a snapshot and move on. I'll shoot it from a bunch of different angles. I'll test the lighting. I'll look at the stuff because, you know, because I know that there's a shot in there somewhere and, and uh, you know, and I'll take a lot of them and then I'll throw the ones that are obviously way off away. And then I'll keep, probably as i said about 75 percent of them and then when i see them full screen i'll make some decisions um but i but that's that kind of coverage of a i know that there's some you know I, it's, to me it's like sifting you know that i know there's gold in here somewhere and, and so i'll take a lot of photos uh, and a lot of my best photos come from that kind of grouping of of shots and that i think that i mean steve that's how i mean that, that's a lot of times when you're when oh, you're yeah. on assignment that's how you shoot it you know it's in there somewhere and you have to shoot a lot of photos to get it right
2: Alex, I think you hit the nail on the head there and I think if you want to see your photography improve, it's not so much sort of shooting blindly everything in front of you, but recognizing something that you describe is important and then just moving around and shooting and trying different angles and and seeing things. Um you should never really take one shot and move on. Um if it if it if it interested you enough to take that one frame, generally speaking, Work it a little more. Don't be lazy. Try things. Because I, I often find, you know, that first shot rarely is the one. Sometimes it's a fast-moving situation. But it's usually, as you described, Alex, working through the situation and finding yourself in a place you couldn't have predicted when you took that first shot. And in editing, you know, the best shot was the 33rd frame. So if you shot seven frames, you never got to that great shot That's that right. won right. you the award.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it, and it and it's cheap, right? It doesn't really cost you anything. Memory cards are crazy expensive compared to what Steve in your day, what you used to pay for film—a <laughs> single roll of film, right? Exactly. Uh, or not to mention the the uh, medium format film, like 120 and the flash film, powder, one twenty
2: film. You know what flash, A bag of flash powder costs. I know, is you know,
1: and then the cleanup and all that stuff. It was oh, crazy. Okay. Well, uh, I think we—I think Aaron Mailer may have accidentally dropped off. So while we try to bring him back on, I'm going to finish this part about the poll. And uh, the new poll that we're doing this week is, have you ever had a memory card fail on you? And the possible answers are no, I've never had one fail on me, or yes, and I lost everything, and, or yes, but I managed to get some or all of the pictures off with a rescue program. So, uh, And I'd be interested to know, you know, just uh, in, the, in the, the comments on twiplog.com, um, yes, I want to know the answers to these, to these poll questions, but I also want to know which brand people are using. I'd be really interested to know what, uh, you know, if you had a card fail on you, which one are you afraid of now? now Steve, what, what, uh, what format card are you using?
2: Well, I'm using uh, compact flashcards for my cameras, but obviously, uh, you know, if, if uh, a camera is going to take the, an SD, the, SD... No, the brand, to, the brand. Oh, I'm using Lexar, Lexar card. And, oh, you know, okay. I, I have to say that, you know, amongst the major manufacturers, and I've heard, and I can't say this for sure, but, um, you know, you should stick to a quality manufacturer. But I think, and Alex, maybe you'll chime in on this, but in terms of digital photography, probably the rock, the, the, the most solid, uh, dependable thing in the chain of digital photography is going to be that compact flash card. I mean, I've heard people put them through the washing machine. Those things <laughs> have taken abuse and, and just continue to work, generally speaking. And even when you screw up, you can still rescue images. So it's, yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: I, I, I haven't, I've never had a compact flash, knock on wood, you know. I've never had a compact flash actually fail. Uh, I have had uh, old... Oh, Olympus used to have some crazy memory card that I can't remember what it was called but it was not a SD it was some kind of other card X- and, XD XD oh is the next one I think isn't that the new oh, okay. but there's okay, an old it yeah. was an old Olympus like when I had this and, and that I had a couple of those fail uh, but but not when I you know when they were sitting around I put them back in the camera and the camera wouldn't recognize them that kind of thing but uh, I, yeah that's the, the compact flash I'm not usually concerned about uh, although I am kind of paranoid about when I shoot I Dump, dump the cards, and I actually leave the images on the card until there's two copies.
2: Yeah, You know, the only else. problem I had, just to chime in quickly, Sorry. I went to the Arctic, and I probably shouldn't admit this publicly, but <laughs> the only compact flashcard problem um, I had, I get to the Arctic, I'm doing this assignment, it's once a year, on July 1st, Canada Day assignment, and um, I had a problem with my compact flashcards because I forgot them on my bed, um, at home when I was <laughs> That
1: could be a problem. So,
2: And I'm in the Arctic. And anyway, it was a happy story because there were photographers there and they rescued me and saved me. But that was really the only problem I've had with compact <laughs> flashcards, and that's forgetting to bring them.
1: Wow. Ouch. All right, uh, yeah. let's move right along here now. Um, uh, Steve, you had a chance to interview David Tejeda, David X. Tejeda, uh, a while ago. You want to give us a, a quick synopsis of what that interview was and and toss into it
2: yeah sure Quickie synopsis i mean we all know that the strobist movement is huge and joe mcnally david hobby well um david tejeda is also on the forefront of that he's a commercial photographer based in colorado and has for years been using lights and small strobes and he's now kind of taken his knowledge and translated it into workshops and he's doing a bunch of different workshops All over the place. As I can see, he's pretty busy these days. He's he's working with the Nikonians. He's doing one in Maine at the Maine workshops. He's doing the Mentor Series, the Nikon Mentor Series, something I do as well. Um, And he's just in demand because he's an expert on the small flash. And I was lucky enough to take a a one day workshop with him. And uh, I mentioned to him at the time that, yeah, I would love to interview for our listeners. And I think um, he's got a lot of great uh, tips in this. The first part of, I believe, a two-part interview uh, with David.
4: Okay, well, uh, TWIP listeners, we're very happy to have David Tahada with us. Did I pronounce that right, David?
5: Yeah, you sure did,
4: thanks. Okay, well, David is uh, a corporate photographer and uh, kind of a, a small strobe and big strobe uh, lighting expert and uh, happy to have you here on TWIP,
5: David. Well, very happy to visit with your uh, listeners. Absolutely. So let me
4: ask you, David. Um, uh, how long have you been in photography? What are your first remembrances of photography? How did you get into it?
5: Actually, uh, it's it's a it's quite an unusual story. I actually got into photography because of Ansel Adams. I was a uh, Ansel Adams fan, like a lot of us. Uh, starting off, uh, loved the black and white scenic type stuff. Uh, taught myself the zone system and. Uh, Didn't know exactly that I was going to be doing photography for a living. I didn't know that you could actually make a living taking pictures. Um, I had uh, worked as a flight attendant for a major airline back in the uh, mid-70s, late 70s. And one day I had a passenger come on my flight that uh, absolutely changed my life. Uh, It was a working professional based out of Houston, Texas. Uh, I had my portfolio with me full of... uh, Ansel Adams type stuff, rocks and trees, just black and white stuff that I used to sell to fellow flight attendants uh, during the Christmas season. And uh, the rest of the crew said, you know, this guy seems pretty important. Why don't you go ahead and sit down and visit with them? So I spent an hour and 45 minutes talking to this gentleman. His name's Joe Barabin out of Houston, Texas. He was a corporate shooter and did advertising work. And uh, we struck up a friendship uh, with the, being a flight attendant I had a lot of free time and I was able to get a lot of time off from uh, my flight attendant duties I would fly to Houston Texas and do some black and white printing form a system on various jobs and uh, I had i had never been in a photo studio before in my life I'd never seen strobes or anything um, I just uh, really just fell in love with the fact that you could actually make a living taking pictures and and that's what I decided to do.
4: Now I guess at that time were you, you were kind of an amateur photographer? Had you been doing photography uh, from oh, since pure, you were a kid?
5: Yeah, just purely amateur. Uh I, I was on the yearbook uh yearbook staff in high school, mm. also on the newspaper staff. Um just really did photography for the love of it. Just uh you know well, those doing are the this right... owner
4: those are the right reasons uh and and previous to that kind of uh fateful day when you uh met uh mr balaban you you hadn't really thought about doing this professionally
5: no i really hadn't i had i did have a neighbor or next door neighbor that uh recognized my uh, sense of composition i guess my my photographs and she really insisted that i Go to school for photography. And uh, I went up to uh, the Pasadena School of Design in uh, California and went there for an interview and uh, just decided the academic thing was not my thing. And I just, you know, did it all self taught basically until I met Joe and apprenticed under him for almost two years. Okay.
4: In the film days, you were working kind of in the tradition of Ansel Adams' uh, zone system, which was, uh, you know, a very kind of meticulously technical way to work for for outstanding results. Um, Do you think there's an advantage to sort of come from that tradition as you uh, transitioned into digital photography?
5: Uh yeah I believe there there is a benefit to that. Uh it certainly gives you a clear understanding uh about metering and what what to meter for. Uh although you know <laughs> nowadays these digital cameras uh you know you've got the matrix metering that gets you in the ballpark and then you know you can you see your results instantaneously on the back of your camera. So you know to to zero in uh quickly into uh some sort of uh, correct metering is really a no-brainer today but i think having that uh that background certainly has uh helped me uh with the digital
4: absolutely and let me ask you i'm just going to talk now about um there's there's been a huge interest in using small strobes for big results as the workshop of your as your workshop moniker attests, and and I think you know there are certain people that are leading the charge in this regard, uh, the strobists, David Hobby Joe McNally uh, yourself, um, why do you suppose there's this this sudden popularity in in using small strobes? Um, Today there seems to be a real explosion in
5: in this area. Yeah, it's really crazy, isn't it? <laughs> it really is. Uh, um, well, I can just I, I'll tell you how it is that I transformed myself from from the big strobes to the small strobes. Uh, more directly to answer your question, I think it's the popularity of the Strobist website and David Hobby that has uh, uh, pushed this so such a popular uh aspect to to lighting with these small strobes i uh, i moved into small strobes probably <clears throat> excuse me um about four years ago as uh as i started working with digital uh, and i got into digital kind of early about 2000 mm. and um i realized that i was working with the uh, dynolites and prior to that speedotron blackline equipment and you know The gear is heavy, number one, and secondly, uh, I could only power down my strobes to a certain amount. Uh, I found myself constantly putting neutral density filters over my strobe heads in order to get uh, the f-stop or the power that I wanted uh, for a creative shot. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, with the big power packs, see, I I come from the days of film with the uh, you know uh, Kodachrome 25. Maybe Valvia rated at ISO 40. And so, you know, shooting with ISO 200 today, uh, that's a real big number for me. And I i uh, i don't need as much power as I, I did in the past. So, you know, I was finding myself with the digital uh, uh, photography that I was having to put neutral density filters on all my studio strobes just to get the power knocked down enough to, uh, you know, creatively use certain f-stops that I wanted to and I realized you know I could really I can use my small strobes the same way I use my studio strobes. Um, All the same modifiers, umbrellas, soft boxes, pumping it through silks, bouncing it off walls, all those other techniques we use in order to uh, modify the quality of the light from these small strobes. But you know once you and then plus, let's just add on to this. So I'm a Nikon shooter, and with the the advent of the the D3, the D700, the files are extremely clean when you crank that ISO up to you know 800, 1200, 2000. These are <laughs> really big numbers, and when you start cranking up your ISO so high, these small strobes are like uh, miniature uh, monoblocks. It, it, it's it's. it's
4: just incredible. Exactly, and so so. Do you use um, some of the, the the bigger studio strobes anymore at all for your shooting? Well,
5: I, I do um, only when I need them. Obviously, there's uh, one big benefit to studio strobes is that you've got it modeling lights, mm-hmm. and uh, even though the SB800, which is my my standard uh, off camera. You know uh speed light it does have a built in modeling light it 's not like a continuous light source like you 'd find with uh, a speedotron or uh, an alien b or or other studio style strobes with a continuous light source for a modeling light mm-hmm. um, you know i I recently did a shot here uh, I used every head I owned six of them, and I needed modeling lights in order to see what I was doing and You know, sometimes you just use the right equipment that you need and the appropriate equipment for a given assignment. But nowadays I'm traveling really with uh, five SB800s and uh, my grip equipment and the modifiers that I would typically use on any other assignment.
4: All right, so um, uh, that sort of leads to my next uh, question, which is... um, Uh, Maybe what is your philosophy when it comes to lighting, and and how do you approach uh, every assignment um, when you get it?
5: Well, you know, what I pack for a given assignment is determined by pre-production meetings and knowing my client, knowing exactly what I'm getting myself into. Uh, asking all the appropriate questions, whether or not, uh, let's say, for instance, I do a lot of heavy industry work. And so uh, if I'm going into uh, a control room situation, I might bring certain types of grip equipment, maybe some additional small miniature lights that are not typically brought with me on assignment, like the Morris minis. Mm -hmm. I'll take those with me to light up behind some computers and even uh, stick and clicks, these little tiny uh, AAA uh, continuous light sources. They're little round things you get at Walmart, like two bucks a piece. I'll, I'll carry a tube full of those if I'm doing a control room type situation where I can put accent lights around under uh, bookshelves and, and various other places just to spiff up the appearance of the room. So, you know, good good uh, pre-production work with your client will determine exactly what kind of gear I'm taking with me Mm -hmm. Um, you know my philosophy is is really trying to produce uh, lighting which is typically subject driven I I don't want to super uh, I don't want to draw attention to the lighting just because hey it's cool lighting uh, I want to make the lighting look like it's believable and it fits the situation for what I'm photographing. Mm. Um, I don't know if we'll have uh, an opportunity to put up a couple images uh, at TWIP just to kind of, as examples, but, uh, you know, if if uh, folks went to uh, my website, they'll see lighting examples that, you know, you kind of look at it and you think, well, that's, is that existing lighting or is that lit lighting you know uh, Yes, yeah, so you want to
4: make I, it look natural so that you can't really you don't see the lighting you see exactly. the subject matter gotcha like- Exactly. Yeah. Um, When you uh, sort of approach an assignment, I know you've got a lot of different stuff that you bring to your your job. Do you kind of um, sort of set the main light first and then take a look at the result and then maybe add light as you need it? Is that how you work? Or can you at at this stage of the game pretty well, you know, assess the scene and know that you're going to use, you know, four flashes and that kind of thing?
5: Yeah, well, what I do typically is first I'll do what I'll call a a location assessment. I'll walk in and take a look at the location that I'm photographing at, looking at what what exists. Is there any available light? What kind of light is it? What color is that light? Uh, I typically look for my background first. I look for the background. If I'm photographing somebody, I'm going to put somebody within that background. And then i'll start lighting in layers i'll use a main light my key light first to light my subject Mm. and then based upon the subject that i'm photographing uh do i need to do i need to hide the room (laughs) is it an ugly room do i need to uh just focus the light on my subject and let the background kind of fade away Am I lighting with grids or a big soft box? Or am I trying to show this individual within the surroundings of their space, which might entail using a very large umbrella, which is very good for lighting and environment as well as the subject it's itself. So <clears throat> I have a lot of things that run through my mind. But typically, you know, I'm I'm going to walk in, see what's there, what can i use can i use the room number 1 is the room attractive enough to where i want to show an individual in their setting or maybe is it is it not important to show them in their setting is this more of a studio style shot you know so there's a lot of considerations to to go through but typically for lighting i'll start with my main light And then start adding lights from that point on, whether I choose to use a hair light or a kicker or some sort of rim light to separate them from the background. Um, All those determinations are, are made based upon the assignment and the location that I'm shooting in.
4: Yeah. Now, you, you've you been in demand in recent uh, months and years, I guess, uh, in terms of, and you enjoy, I know you enjoy teaching and we'll talk later about uh, the workshops that you give and where people can get more information. But um, you know there there are so many bits and pieces that uh, potentially are involved in in using uh, this equipment. Um, I think you know maybe some listeners might feel a little bit overwhelmed by that. Um, would you suggest those that are interested in 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 you know, taking their flash out of their hot shoe and using off-camera flash and wireless flash, how should they begin? Should they start maybe with one flash off-camera or maybe a setup with, with two flashes? What would you recommend?
5: I would certainly recommend two flashes for sure. <clears throat> Excuse me. Two flashes uh, are, are going to give you, number one, the ability to light your main subject, and then the second light can either be used to light the background or to separate your subject from the background using that second light as a rim light or some other means to separate your back, you know, your subject from the background. Right. Um, you know, uh, I would go with an umbrella.
4: Mm-hmm. An
5: umbrella is a very useful tool. I'd recommend something like a sixty-inch umbrella and what we call a convertible. It has a black material over the top of it and you can actually remove that black surface so that you can actually shoot the strobe through the umbrella itself so you can use the umbrella as a shoot through or by leaving the black cover on it you can bounce your light into it and throw the light everywhere Mm -hmm. and i say everywhere (laughs) because (laughs) if you've ever heard the term carpet bombing in the second world war that's sort of what an what an umbrella is it once you throw photons into an umbrella that light is going everywhere right and so you you want to try to learn how to control that but if you had one light i would say an umbrella Uh, an umbrella is a very good tool to use. You can use it for bounce in or shoot through. And if you want to, you can actually you know, typically an umbrella people open it up all the way to where uh, it snaps open and you've got this big, huge shape. Well, there's there's no reason why you can't use that umbrella collapsed. You mm-hmm. can actually collapse it down the shaft of the umbrella <clears throat> pardon me um, uh, so that you just have a smaller opening, and it pretty much uh, resembles that of a small soft box. Mm. So you kind of have two, two lights in one. You have the large umbrella if you want to scatter light everywhere, or you can simply collapse the uh, umbrella down the shaft a little bit so that it's just a smaller opening, and then you're kind of uh, chal- challenge, or, uh, uh, channeling that light out of the umbrella into a certain shape that you're you're designating by the the, the size of the opening that you've uh, set your umbrella at. Gotcha. Um, you, you know, know the, so go ahead.
4: Oh, I was going to say these small flashes are are so maneuverable in the sense that uh, I know both Nikon and Canon, for example, you can kind of aim the flash head in different directions. You can zoom the angle of flash, so you can control how much. Uh, you know mm-hmm. the angle that comes out of it, um, is this something that are these things that you use a lot i mean you you often bouncing off a wall or a ceiling and when in your setups as you uh, approach an assignment
5: well a- absolutely uh, you know the the whole thing is that these small strobes are small, and the flash tube is really an inch by about two and a half inches, so that 's a very, very hard light source. Uh, My goal is to make that light source as large and as soft as possible, so it's it's beautiful light. And so by bouncing that light off of a wall or bouncing it into a larger umbrella, we have increased the size of that light source, and the larger the light source typically means the softer the light. Mm. Now that depends upon how far away the light source is uh, to your subject that you're photographing. Uh, I often tell people in my workshops, you know, the, the, sun, we kind of think of it as a very, very hard light source. Uh, actually, you know, the sun is really quite a soft light source. It's, it's only hard because it's so far away from us. It's billions of miles away, but if we could actually get close enough to the sun, uh, it would be a very soft light source. So if you were to take like, as an example, you take a 60 inch umbrella and you place it within 60 inches of your subject, that's considered a very soft light source. Mm -hmm. But if we take that same 60 inch umbrella and walk it across the street and place it on the sidewalk on the other side of the street, well, the size of that 60 inch light source becomes quite small. And hence it becomes a very hard light source. Right. So, right. you know, it depends upon how large a light source is in comparison to the size of the object that you're photographing, and uh, you know that's that's the key to using these small strobes. And <clears throat> pardon me, um, I I embrace the uh, what we call Nikon calls the CLS method in order to fire my strobes off camera. Uh, I use the built-in commander, or sometimes I use the Nikon. S U 800 commander but right from my camera position without walking over to the strobe I can raise and lower the power of my strobes right from my camera position which is a great asset we don't have cords attached to the strobes I can I can hang them on walls I can hang them from pipe I have I can put them on lights traditional light stands but I can control these strobes uh, remotely from my camera position, which is just a, a wonderful, wonderful technology.
4: Yeah, I, th- I think those listeners that have experimented a little with the CLS system uh, will attest that it really is quite fantastic as to oh. you know, what you can do um, just from the camera position. You don't have to run over and it. Saves so much time and allows you to kind of engage with your subject a, a lot exactly. easier
5: now with yeah, all the
4: oh go ahead david
5: i was i was going to say that's exactly right and there there are some limitations to this uh uh cls method as well as canon's uh, ETTL. you have a sort of an invisible leash in a sense you can only use your strobes at a certain distance um i know that uh uh, Pocket Wizards is working on a new uh, technology. They have one out now for Canon. It seems to have some, uh, some difficulty with uh, uh, length wise. Uh, I've recently uh, came across some radio poppers, uh, the, the PX1 system. Uh, I have uh, a couple of uh, receivers and one transmitter, and I am able, I'm absolutely blown away by this, quite honestly um i have uh, uh been able to control my strobes uh remotely at a distance of about 1500 feet
4: 1500 feet that's
5: fantastic cls i can control my strobes the power raise it lower it raise the power uh and also have high speed sync for uh control of my strobes at 1500 feet Wow. Th- this I is think, absolutely remarkable.
4: Yeah, I mean, those that have played with CLS or used it professionally understand that um, it's the infrared uh, sort of light, uh, line of sight that's needed in order to fire it. So it can be frustrating at times when the flash is not going off the way you want it to, but you're mm-hmm. saying that the radio popper kind of eliminates that problem.
5: It eliminates it completely, and <clears throat> I've never seen a product like it. Quite honestly, I'm I'm blown away. <laughs> okay, well, that's fantastic. Um,
4: I was going to ask you, um, uh, David, uh, because you carry arguably I don't know how many pieces are in your system. There's lots of bits bits and pieces in in the lighting setups and the equipment you sure. bring. Um, what advice do you have to stay organized uh, when it comes to, uh, you know? moving your stuff around do you have kind of a system and i guess everyone should probably sort of figure out their own system
5: yeah I, I sure do i use uh i don't even know if it's uh quite honestly i don't know if it's a timba or a tamrac i i use these roller cases <clears throat> and uh the roller cases i have two of them uh you know the largest one uh the inside dimension allows me to carry a 42 inch uh, length collapsed stand because I like to use a couple of large stands, at least 13 foot tall stands, mm. so I can get my lights quite high, um, and I also use those stands as a uh, a boom as well, uh, a boom base. But uh, I use two roller cases. Um, you know, I carry uh, various stands. I use uh, all my modifiers. I, I like to carry uh, various size octa boxes from a three foot to five foot. I'll even carry sometimes a 7-foot Octabox with me. Um, I use panels, uh, umbrellas. I carry a 60-inch umbrella. I also carry a 43-inch convertible. It's a collapsible one. Uh, I've also started using... um, this uh new product called the Foursquare. i don't know if you've seen this before Steve, but it's I've uh, seen it's it made... on
4: your website it it looks really uh intriguing for, yeah. for small strobe shooters
5: yeah uh, definitely it's it's a small strobe shooters uh, delight quite honestly it's made by uh, the folks that make lightwear uh cases i think it's i think their website is not 4 square but it's uh lightwear Direct.com, I believe, is what it is. But the whole crux of the idea is it's a it's a soft box. It's thirty inches by thirty inches, and the the hub of the system is a uh, aluminum square that has four built-in cold shoes. So I can actually put four speed lights uh, on on the or inside the soft box, and uh, it collapses all the way down to a nineteen-inch uh, length. Uh, tube that fits inside of a very small case for me. So I'm actually able to carry a 30 inch by 30 inch beautiful soft box. It's got beautiful quality light and something that's just 19 inches in length. Yeah, it's incredible. That's,
4: that's the big advantage. Basically having kind of a studio system I guess with four uh, flashes in a very small package I, I suspect.
5: So yeah. and you know, A lot of people who use the small strobes, they're looking they're looking to minimize their equipment and to get down to small lighting kits. Um, and this is one way to do that. You know, the, the 43 inch uh, collapsible convertible umbrella made by Westcott is one of those uh, tools that a lot of photographers use. And now now the four square with uh, the 30 by 30 inch softbox in something that's 19 inches, Great assets to have with you if you're building yourself a small lighting kit for sure.
4: David, I was going to ask you um, one of the kind of major advances in photography uh, has been the ability to shoot at high speed sync. And I know that Nikon and Canon cameras and others. Um, allow you to shoot at shutter speeds up to 2,000, 4,000th of a second with strobe. Um, is the high-speed uh, sync something that you use, um, and 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 what are the advantages of using it? I, I guess you can get selective focus in, in bright light.
5: Well, oh, exactly right. As a matter of fact, I, I, I don't use it very often, but as a matter of fact, I did use it last week. I was shooting for a client down... At a chemical weapons plant uh, that's being built uh, down here in southern Colorado in Pueblo, okay. and uh, I—you can't this...
4: divulge the location, I'm sure.
5: Uh, yeah, I really can't. <laughs> uh, okay. I'd have to shoot you. I—I um, uh, I, 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 one of the uh, parameters around the uh, assignment is that I can't show any of these uh, chemical weapon igloos out and around the construction site, so I have to use minimal depth of field. Hmm. So what I end up doing was using the high-speed high sink, uh, placing my, my subject that I was photographing, a uh, safety manager that won some special award or something, uh, I placed him in shade behind electrical panel and then used the, uh, the new four-square with two strobes in it and I had my assistant Eric hand hold the four square very close to my subject, and I was able to shoot wide open at 2.8 for the particular lens that I was using, 2.8 at eight thousandth of a second, and to throw the construction site completely out of focus to where you can recognize that it is a construction site with the girders and some equipment and such, but it absolutely obliterated any kind of uh, A view that you might have had of these uh, chemical weapon igloos that were you know around the site so you know high-speed sync for me uh, certainly allowed me this creative option uh, Mm. that that I wouldn't have had in the past it's it's really phenomenal and you know with high-speed sync very quickly for those uh, listeners that are not familiar with it uh, most of our cameras have a, a native sync speed, typically 250th for a Nikon. You can tell me, Steve, I think you're a Canon uh, shooter or no,
4: I'm I'm oh, two. Oh, no, I'm an Nikon guy. Oh, no, I'm sorry. That's right.
5: You are a Nikon. Um, I think Canon is like 200th of a second, or it depends on which model you have. Right, but right. But your, your native sync speed for like a Nikon would be 250th of a second because we have two curtains, running in our cameras the first curtain travels up it exposes the entire sensor in your camera and then the second curtain follows behind it and closes well it's at 250th of a second that the first curtain is completely open and the second curtain has not yet started to travel and therefore your strobes at 250th of a second will give you an evenly illuminated image at high speed sync Let's say it's at eight thousandth of a second. As soon as you click that shutter, the first curtain starts to take off and then the second one is following, I mean, in just a little slit right behind it. So you're kind of asking yourself, well, how do we get this high speed sync? How do we get the whole scene illuminated? What happens is the strobes are firing continuously as that small slit in the curtains are traveling across the sensor. So instead of one big pop of the strobe, it's actually going pop, 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 pop. It's firing the whole time that that those two curtains are traveling across the sensor. And that's how we're getting the, uh, the high speed sync.
4: It really is a remarkable technology, but more importantly, I mean, now uh, there are few limitations in that you could be in a, a horrible light situation, a noonday sun, and uh, if you position your subject right and use uh, the small uh, flash with high speed sync, you can create a beautiful light coming from that um, flash regard you know depending on what modifier you put over it um, and get selective focus, something you 're not used to seeing in bright light. Um, mm-hmm. For really nice portraits, I've seen you, you've you had some, some nice, some beautiful portraits you've done that way. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, that's something I want to experiment more as I go forward sure. uh,
5: with sure. your and inspiration that, and others. Yeah. And I think that, you know, your listeners should realize that when you're outside using the sun or shooting in the sun using high-speed sync or even without the high-speed sync, think of the sun as a second light source.
1: mm use that sun as
5: your second light source and let it be your hair light and rim light over the shoulders to separate your subject from the background and then use your strobe as your main light so you have quality light so Mm -hmm. that's just absolutely
4: absolutely yeah and for the first time we can really do that with the uh high-speed sync. As we uh, sort of wind down here, David, and I appreciate your time, um, I'll just ask you this because you've been in the business for a long time and we're going through kind of uh, uncharted waters, uh, those of us in the professional photography business. Um, How has the business, in your opinion, changed in recent years and uh, where do you see things going?
5: Well I can tell you that uh, when I It is a tough time right now, for sure. Uh, My commercial assignments are fewer than they have been. Um, But I will tell you also that when I started my business in 1983, we were in an economic period similar to this. And I found that to be a very good time to start a business. And I say so because, uh, you know, if you can make it, during hard times, now it will seem a lot easier as the economy improves. Uh, when I started in '83, 1983, uh, it we were a very tough time, uh, high unemployment, just like we have now, and uh, you know interest rates were high, and all all those economic uh, dire situations that we were, we're experiencing now. Uh, it made me work very hard. All I needed it back then was like, just, just please give me one job a month. <laughs> all, right. all I need, all I needed, you know, I had roommates and I was trying to get my business going. But you know what? When you're starting off in a bad economy, uh, you know, your first job is one more than you had. And your second job is twice as many as you've had after your first job. And you can, <laughs> o- you can only go up. Exactly. and it's 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 very hard for people starting off in this business to accept uh, rejection in, in any any time of your career. You may have to make ten, fifteen, twenty phone calls, cold calls, or interviews before you actually get your first job. And you can understand how somebody would become discouraged after their ninth rejection, your tenth rejection. You know, you just think, nobody wants to hire me. Nobody, you know, you shouldn't be getting discouraged. You have to be encouraged in the fact that you have nine failures. You're closer to getting that assignment than you were when you first started off. You know, you have to be very optimistic and persistent with, with, uh, you know, with this business. <laughs> well, that's
4: it, that's uh inspiring advice, though, no question. Uh-huh. I mean, perseverance is is, you know, only you can sort of stop yourself. You just have to keep at it and believe in yourself and uh ultimately uh, things will work out, right?
5: That's exactly right. And if if you have a passion for photography like like I do, uh this is the only thing that I want to do for a living. This is it. And uh uh, and this is you know i've I've slugged this out for uh, twenty seven years now uh self employed and and making pictures and working for clients uh, you know when you have uh, i have clients that i've worked with for 26 years wow wow amazing okay.
4: yeah, I've, yeah. No, I
5: have a lot of clients that i've worked with for my whole career so it's yeah. it's amazing.
4: Well, David, I I very much uh, appreciate things, and um, just we're going to maybe now tell viewers sort of how to get a hold of you. I've got uh, the, the, and we'll we'll sort of list this um, on the Twiplog site, but um, let me just ask you, what are your plans for the future? Because I know you um, have been doing, you've been working with Nikonians, doing... uh, some small stroke, big results, uh, workshops. And, and mm-hmm. first off, let me just tell people where, where to reach you.
5: Okay. Um, you can, you can, I've got a couple websites, of course. Um, you might want to check out my blog, uh, I have a lot of information there. It's David dot blogspot.com. Now and please then, spell
4: it out because every time I okay, typed out
5: to it was different every time. Okay, it's D A V I D T E J A D A dot blogspot dot com. So it's T E J A D A Tahada. And then
4: for your actual um, website that also has a Tahada in it.
5: Yes, uh... that'd be a That's sort of my commercial site. And then for my Small Strobes Big Results workshops, the uh, lighting workshops that I conduct around the country, uh, that would just simply be SmallStrobesBigResults.com. And uh, you did mention that I'm working with Nikonians. Uh, I've got my uh, actually my first Nikonians workshop in San Francisco this coming August. It'll be August 17th and 18th. And then uh, in September, I'm going to be doing a week-long workshop at Maine Media Workshops out in uh, Rockport, Maine. It's going to be September 13th through the 19th as well. Uh, I do have a a, a fun one coming up. I think this is actually where you and I met, Steve. Um, It is. This was Philadelphia. Uh, I'm going to be giving a, a workshop for the Mentor Series, the Popular Photography in American Photo. Uh, I'll be teaching along with Michael Kennedy October 30th through November 1st. Uh, we are going to be uh, photographing at the Eastern State Penitentiary, uh, a very historic uh, prison that uh, uh, Steve and I were shooting at uh, with uh, my Small Strobes Big Results workshop. It's a it's a prison that was built back. Actually, I think it was the first United States prison built in eighteen twenty two. It's it's an
4: amazing place and uh, I would definitely encourage anybody. I was lucky enough to be there for uh, a Small Strobes Big Results uh, workshop in the penitentiary and they let me out at the end. Um, Did you have Al- fun
5: with that? I had a
4: lot of fun with it. It was great. It was I learned a lot and uh, that's the place where Al Capone stayed. And, and That's you can exactly see,
5: right. You yeah, can see so the I'll-
4: cell that he hung out at
5: yeah, exactly. And so we'll be doing a lighting workshop there for the Mentor Series uh, October 30th, uh, one day at the uh, penitentiary. And then we follow up with the uh, a day at Longwood uh, uh, Botanical Gardens, uh, a very beautiful setting uh, somewhere there in uh, uh, Philadelphia close by. So there's a lot of things going on. Uh, I also teach at uh, Santa Fe workshops, Uh, did one workshop called Small Strobes, Big Results. Uh, This last year, I'll be teaching uh, this coming uh, winter for them as well. So check out their websites as well for uh, information. You know, Steve, I'm also looking for... I'm always looking for new locations to conduct my small strobes big results workshops. And if, uh, if you're interested in having a small strobes big results workshop in, in your neighborhood or in your city, uh, and you would like to host it, I can give you information about how to host a workshop. Uh, one of the things I do look for are unique locations to photograph in. Uh, typically, uh, Small Strobes Big Results Workshop is a one-day intensive workshop, and uh, we like to have a, a location that's interesting to photograph at. And if, if you have uh, a location in mind that you would like to have a Small Strobes Big Results Workshop uh, in your neighborhood and you want to host it, I'd love to hear from you.
4: Absolutely. And it seems that uh, a lot of the locations like penitentiaries and old abandoned places uh, can be the most interesting and, oh, and yeah, accessible, sure. too. Well, Absolutely. David, thank you so much. Uh, I, a lot of great information here. And we look forward to uh, following up with you uh, in the months to come. So I Sounds appreciate true. you taking out the time. righty, Steve. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you. Mm-hmm.
2: Okay, well, that was David Tejeda, and we're going to hear more great stuff from uh, David uh, next week. Excellent, uh, cool. Fred, over to you. All right,
1: so let's jump into the picks of the week. Um, I'm looking in the notes here, and all I see are my picks, but maybe I have a... Refresh. An outdated... No, I have a printed... Copy. <laughs> so what? let's start with let's start with you, Alex. What's your pick of the week? It better not be mine, by the way.
0: Um, well I'm see. I, I was gonna say snow leopard. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> no, you can't say snow leopard. Okay, so um, the one my pick for the week uh, is is a small, compact flash reader, a small general reader. Uh, one of my things that I, I'm always looking for is tiny, tiny little readers um, that I can carry in my bag. And so this one just has turned out to be a very solid little um, reader here. So, so see this right here. This is the Targus, and it's uh, USB two and i like it a lot it's very tiny so it's uh and it uh does you know all the things you'd expect compact flash s d h c sd which is important you get these small ones and a lot of times they're just sd now Mm -hmm. or they were and and that's a real problem um it also handles the compact flash and x and xd so when xd cards are coming out uh, it does handle that and it also handles the uh sony crazy um you know uh, memory sticks which i don't like very much but um but i'm but i'm but when i need them i need them and uh and this turned out to be really great and it's like 15 bucks or something or 10 bucks where'd you really pick that cheap. up at? um i picked it up at H when i was cool. in new york and so, uh, cause I didn't, I left mine at, uh, when yeah. I was doing a shoot, I left it somewhere. Yeah. That's so I went when and you it.
2: didn't call me, Alex, you were in New York and you didn't call me. That <laughs> Not that Oops. you're bitter.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, yes, yes. I should have called Steve. Hey Steve, how's it going? Uh, let's get a beer. And, uh, do you have a compact flash? <laughs> I gonna hook you, you up. You gonna save 15 bucks. <laughs> But but it turned out that I it, it, you know it, I don't know why but there's this, there's a certain haiku of finding the perfect little compact flash reader and this is I don't know if it's the perfect one but it is uh, the smallest one that 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 reads the most number of uh, kind of cards that we need um, and so uh, Targus makes it and it's um it's it's a great little uh, great little piece that's my pick for the week. All right, Aaron Mailer, what's your pick? Well, <laughs> I
3: don't know whether to believe what I see in the script here. But I know I put mine in first because I because uh, he <laughs> you know did was, show so. notes.
1: You, yeah, you can so, take Snow uh, Leopard
3: because I have a backup my, if you'd like. To yeah, take Snow my Leopard. my pick was Snow Leopard, um, <laughs> certainly because uh, from a performance standpoint, it's really doing it for me. So uh, you know, here's here's my little box right here. So everybody knows I've already got it. All right, it's on the machine. So and we beat that to death at the beginning of the show. So I will pass on to the next person. All right, Steve, what's yours?
2: Well, in keeping with our guest David Tejada and his lighting expertise, um, I have picked something that I haven't tried yet, but I have to admit I'm very excited about the idea of maybe um, getting a chance to use this and ultimately buy them. The Ellen Crom Ranger Quadra Head Pro Set. And basically, I know, it it doesn't roll off the tongue or it doesn't roll off my tongue, but but basically it's a, a studio flash, but these, it's tiny. I mean, I've used uh, Ellen Crom 600B, uh, which is a 600 watt second unit, uh, professional studio, uh, Prophoto pro photo makes fantastic things. But um, Ellen Crom, this this new set, they're 400 watt seconds. It allows uh, for two heads to be put in. These heads will literally fit in your pocket. So for location photographers that want to go beyond what their small Canon, small Nikon flashes or Vivitar 285s will do, these give you a lot more power. They also have Um, uh, uh, remote control their radio frequency so you're not going to have to worry about them not firing they're tiny and they're light and i think for for any location photographer wedding photographer i know there are a lot of photographers like myself who are kind of excited about this kind of a product to come out it's small it's fairly powerful and will take all the regular studio accessories so um, with david on i, I figured I would uh, give a lighting pick and it 's kind of a high end They're, The kit is is not cheap, but then again, not necessarily expensive If you add uh, for instance with nikon you you put three s p nine hundreds you're you 're in the range of this Quadra set, which is about two thousand
1: or twenty one hundred dollars yeah cool. All right, my pick. Yeah. Now that I had to had time to think about what my new pick was, since two people stole my pick, <laughs> um, is is actually two websites. Uh, one of them, if you haven't been to Joe McNally's website, McNallyphoto dot com, I believe it is. Uh, make sure you go there and check it out. His stuff is, you know, as Fantastic. you may know, I'm a I'm a big fan of Joe McNally. Yeah. Uh, so definitely check that out and bookmark it, put in your RSS feed reader, etc. And also for the one person in the audience that hasn't heard of Strobist, make sure you go to Strobist s t r o b i s t dot com. Uh, that's David Hobby's website, and always has he always has lots of cool and interesting things to talk about there, whether it be about technique for, for shooting or different gear that, that he's testing the latest one of the latest things I saw a, c- a couple days ago or if it was maybe it was yesterday was uh, he was testing the radio poppers uh, which is a, a wireless slave system for for your digital SLR or for your SLR period and uh, you know he's put it through his paces and it, it looks like a pretty interesting uh, little little piece of kit there for you to buy. So check that out at strobus.com and dot and I think that brings us to the end of the show, guys. So uh, let's uh, give folks just a quick update on where to, where to find you guys if they want to follow you on the, in the ethers. Aaron?
3: Uh, you can find me at my blog, uh, halfpress.com, H-A-L-F-B-R-E-S-S, and um, also on Twitter. I haven't been on either very much this summer because I've had an insanely busy summer with a huge project, but I'm wrapping that up in the coming weeks. So uh, I should start to resurface, H-A-L-F-B-R-E-S-S. All right. Steve, where can people find you?
2: Uh, Twitter slash Steve Simon. And on my website, um, stevesimonphoto.com. Go to workshops and lectures because I've got a bunch of workshops coming up and uh, would love to meet some Twip listeners at some of these workshops.
0: Excellent. And uh, Mr. Alex Lindsay, Uh, you can find me on the Twitters. Alex Lindsay, all all one word. Excellent. And me as well. If you're looking for
1: me, Frederick Van, you can find me on Twitter, F-R-E-D-E-R-I-C-K-V-A-N on Twitter and frederickman.com is my website. And that brings us to the end of this episode of This Week in Photography. It is time to take that lens cap off.